Hello and welcome to The Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, the Affordable Care Act, Liberty, Justice, and Expansion for All. Our guest is Attorney Nicole Huberfeld. She is a professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at Boston University School of Public Health and professor of law at Boston University School of Law. Her work is at the intersection of health law and constitutional law, more specifically the role of federalism in healthcare, and often writes about Medicaid. She has authored numerous books and scholarly journal articles, including the first new case book on healthcare law in a generation. Her work was cited by the U.S. Supreme Court in the first Affordable Care Act case, NFIB v. Sebelius. She has been published in national and international journals, including Stanford Law Review, New England Journal of Medicine, Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law and Ethics, and has been interviewed by media outlets, including the Washington Post, New York Times, and NPR. Let's welcome attorney and professor Nicole Huberfeld. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, our show topic is the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. I think many people don't realize that's actually what it is. Um, now, can you tell me a little about the case that we just cited uh, with uh, Secretary Sebelius? NFIB versus Sebelius was the first challenge to the Affordable Care Act. It was the case in which the constitutionality of the act was at stake. And most people know that the so-called individual mandate was upheld by the Supreme Court in that case. What many people, I think, don't realize is that Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act was also questioned constitutionally. And the Supreme Court decided that Medicaid expansion, though it was mandatory under the Affordable Care Act, was to be um, deemed coercive and because it was coercive for the states to participate in Medicaid expansion, the court held that states could choose whether or not they would participate in Medicaid expansion. Now, you talk about the expansion. Uh, I think some folks don't really understand what that term expansion means. Can you elaborate upon that? Absolutely. So if we were to say there was one major goal for the Affordable Care Act, it is near-universal insurance coverage. And the reason that's important is that health insurance is the gateway to health care in the United States. Historically, health care is a private transaction between a patient and a physician or a hospital. And so over time, we learned that people needed help paying for that care, which led to the advent of health insurance. But by the time President Obama was elected in 2008, we had a major percentage of the population who was uninsured. And so the biggest goal of the ACA was to figure out how to get people who were uninsured insurance coverage. This was important because historically we relied on employer-sponsored health insurance. In other words, people usually in the past between World War II and about the late 1980s would get health insurance as an employment benefit. But by 2008, it was clear that for people who were earning a low income and working part-time jobs, it was extraordinarily difficult to get health insurance as an employment benefit, either because it wasn't offered or it was too expensive to afford. So nearly 18% of the population was uninsured. To address that, the Affordable Care Act made it so that private insurance would become better available through health insurance exchanges, which are also called marketplaces, mm -hmm. 
And that was primarily either individual insurance or small group insurance that's subsidized through federal taxes. Or people could get insurance through Medicaid expansion. Now, what that means is that Medicaid historically only covered about 40% of the nation's poor. It didn't cover those who were childless, non-disabled, non-elderly adults. And so Medicaid expansion covers that population and makes it so that anyone who is impoverished is eligible for Medicaid. And for those people that don't know, the federal poverty level is uh, statistically uh, something that um, is unbelievable. In the United States, one person, uh, the federal uh, poverty level is $12,490 for one person. That's right. And for two people, it's $16,910. Right. It's unbelievable. This is a number that's determined every year by the Department of Health and Human Services. And so it is supposed to be cued to changes in the economy, and it is a number that increases very slightly every year. But the poverty level is quite low. It is. So these folks were not covered. They couldn't get covered. It was impossible for them to get covered because they would all have low-paying jobs. That's right. And so it's not just that they had low-paying jobs and couldn't afford health insurance as an employment benefit, but also that low-paying jobs and part-time jobs are not likely to offer health insurance as an employment benefit in the first place. So what we're talking about really is how to get the working poor into health insurance. And the uh, Affordable Care Act did just that. And from from reading some of your articles um, and some of your um, law reviews, I found that it was quite interesting that um, there was what they called um, deserts, uh, where there was no maternal, maternity wards in some rural parts of this country. Can you elaborate on, on that particular aspect of your, um, of your writing? Sure. So one important facet of getting health care in the United States is being able to pay for it. But just because you have health insurance doesn't mean that you can get access to health care depending on where you live. Right. It may not be available. And so what we've seen is a phenomenon of either hospitals closing or closing certain departments in rural areas of the United States. This is particularly true for maternity wards because they are expensive to maintain. And in rural areas, there may not be enough births in a given town or catchment for that hospital for the hospital to be able to maintain the maternity ward. And so they close. And what that means is that women who are delivering babies may have to travel more than an hour to the nearest hospital to be able to safely deliver their baby. And the reason that this is important for writing that I've done and the conversation that we're having is that because states were allowed to decide whether they would opt in or opt out of Medicaid expansion under the ACA, there's a clear pattern that in those states that have not expanded Medicaid, more rural hospitals are closing, jeopardizing the health of those populations and the livelihoods of the people in those towns. So these people, they're not only poor, they don't have much, if any, health care, and they don't even have access to a hospital. It seems to me this is a recipe for disaster, not only for the mother, but for the children as well. Is it not? It is not a tenable situation. And the difficulty, too, lies in the fact that if a person doesn't have regular access to health care, it's possible and even likely that they will be less healthy at the time that they become pregnant. 
which of course jeopardizes the health of both the pregnant woman and the fetus. So it is a matter of the health of the pregnancy, the health of the woman who is pregnant, and also the health of the infant being born in a setting that may or may not be safe. We see also in these areas that there are trends toward increasing maternal mortality. And so it's all of a piece that if a person can't have regular access to health care, it does jeopardize their health. So if one claims to be pro-life, shouldn't they also be pro-Medicaid as well, an expansion of Medicaid? Wouldn't that surely follow? One would think they would go hand in hand, yes. But that's not always the case. It's not always the case. Yes, and in many states, um, in fact, I think you've mentioned that before um, um, in your discussions, that in many states that is um, the case where they do not uh, take on the ACA or they will not tell anyone uh, about their working with the federal government uh, towards uh, integrating the ACA. Could you speak about that particular aspect? Sure. The uh, secret boyfriend phenomenon, I think it's called. Okay. So so I spent a lot of time studying the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and in particular studying the two key elements of expanding health insurance that I just discussed, the health insurance exchange implementation and implementation of Medicaid expansion. And so what happened after NFIB versus Sibelius was decided is that states were empowered to decide how and whether they would implement these two key elements of the Affordable Care Act. With the health insurance exchanges, if a state decided not to take federal money to implement or create its own health insurance exchange or marketplace, then the federal government does it for the state. And so there will be an exchange in every state regardless of who runs it, whether it's the federal government or the state. The anticipation on the part of Congress was that states would want to run their own exchanges because historically states are responsible or have been responsible for regulating health insurance. Mm -hmm. However, only about a third of states have their own exchanges. On the other hand, with Medicaid expansion, if a state does not expand Medicaid, then there is no Medicaid expansion in that state. There's no federal fallback. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was a set of negotiations between the Department of Health and Human Services, and states that were perhaps reticent to implement what many call Obamacare, uh, whether for political purposes or concerns about economics. Uh, there are a variety of factors in play. And so HHS, uh, my studies have shown, was uh, taking a long-term view of what was important about the Affordable Care Act. And that long-term view was that we wanted to get people covered universal coverage was the goal. Mm -hmm. And so HHS was willing to negotiate with states to help them find ways to expand Medicaid in particular, because otherwise there's a coverage gap in the states that don't have Medicaid. And so that included allowing states to give their own names to Medicaid expansion and to health insurance exchanges. And so in my writing with my co-author, Abby Gluck, we have called this secret boyfriend federalism because <laughs> the states were engaged in negotiation with the federal government to implement the ACA, but they did it on their own terms and sort of in secret. 
So they wanted the ACA, but didn't want to show that they were engaged in negotiating toward implementing the ACA. So it's kind of like a sly institution of the ACA without anyone being cognizant. Now, how did that work out? Do you think people in those states actually caught on that this was really the ACA masquerading as something else? I think actually there was an accountability problem Mm -hmm. because if a state, for example, Connecticut, calls its Medicaid program Husky Care, right, people don't necessarily know whether it's Connecticut running that, whether it has anything to do with the Affordable Care Act, where the money's coming from, who's implementing policy, where the policy started, who's responsible for it. And so there have been issues that are evidenced by the 2016 elections that indicate that the electorate wasn't necessarily aware of Mm -hmm. the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and the fact that that federal law was responsible for people getting health insurance coverage. It seems to me that the poorest poorest population actually benefits by the ACA, but then, in fact, may not have voted for a candidate that may have had their best interest at heart. At least that's what it appears to me. Uh, It seems to me the ACA was put in place by uh, President Obama, a Democrat, and um, President Trump is actually trying to shrink some of that uh, benefit. In fact, isn't it a work requirement, something of his uh, doing with regards to Medicaid? Yes. So... There are a couple of things going on there. uh, One is that, uh, statistically, people who are poor are significantly less likely to vote because voting is harder for them to perform. And so I think Time off from work and all that. Time off from work, um, distance to travel, difficulty in travel, child care, um, voting hours that may not be Mm -hmm. uh, easy for a person who Mm -hmm. has a regular minimum wage job, 9 to 5, or multiple part-time jobs even. And so um, I think that that narrative about whether or not the poor vote in their own interests is trickier than it seems because many poor people actually are not able to vote because it is simply uh, not something that they can perform uh, because the circumstances don't allow it. And so I think it's a harder question than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, people tend to look at states that have a lot of rural poor and say, well, why are these states not implementing the ACA? And again, some of it is politics. Uh, If you look beneath the surface in a lot of these states, there are organizations, there are legislators, there are governors who have been, depending on the state, pushing for expansion, but it takes time. And that is part of what you see in the voter referenda that just occurred in Utah and Idaho and Nebraska and Maine before that, Mm -hmm. that the populations became frustrated with waiting for politicians to figure it out and voted in Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that being said, at the same time, the Trump administration is openly hostile to the Affordable Care Act. And I say it in that way because the first executive order that President Trump signed was an executive order designed to minimize every feature of the Affordable Care Act that could be minimized from an administrative perspective. In other words, the president directed his agencies to not execute the law of the Affordable Care Act in any way that they could. At the same time, the administrator 
who was appointed to be responsible for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma, is a person who was in um, a, a private consulting firm. She ran her own consulting firm. And that consulting firm designed Medicaid waivers for states that wanted to expand Medicaid on their own terms. And most of those states, under her architecture, sought work requirements, or more accurately, work reporting requirements. Now, the Obama administration and every other administration before rejected state requests for work requirements because the Medicaid Act is designed to ensure that people who are poor get medical care, and not only get medical care, but medical care paid for. So in other words, under the Medicaid Act, if a person is eligible for Medicaid enrollment, work may not be implemented as a condition of eligibility. In other words, if you meet the financial and other qualifying terms of the mm -hmm. Medicaid Act, you get into Medicaid. Mm -hmm. There can't be a waiting period or other obstacle to being enrolled in Medicaid. Administrator Verma had designed waivers for states that were interested in figuring out whether or not work requirements and other novel aspects of Medicaid could be implemented. The Obama administration did allow some of those novel features to be implemented. For example, refusing to pay for non-emergency medical transportation. In other words, sometimes people living in rural areas or people who are poor can't find transportation to doctor's offices mm -hmm. or to hospitals. So they call an ambulance and use an ambulance to get there. Some states are refusing to pay for that now. That's something the Obama administration did permit. On the other hand, work requirements never were permitted. And in fact, Congress has considered whether or not work requirements could or should be part of the Medicaid Act and has rejected that idea. Nevertheless, this administration, the Trump administration, put out a policy statement that it would allow states to implement work requirements under waiver authority, meaning that the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, working with Administrator Verma, would review state proposals for work requirements. And many states have had work requirements actually approved now. And how is that working out? Well, so Kentucky was the first state to get its work requirements approved. They were challenged in court. The District Court of the District of Columbia mm -hmm. held that the uh, process was flawed. In other words, Kentucky had submitted its request for a waiver when the circumstances were such that it was understood that work requirements were not legal. Then HHS issued that policy statement I just mentioned, and then a week later approved Kentucky's waiver request mm -hmm. so that there was a flaw in the process of being able to submit comments as to whether or not work requirements were legal or, or desirable from a policy mm -hmm. perspective. That case is called Stewart versus Azar. Mm -hmm. It's going to be heard again in the middle of March. You know, I think some people think that people are, are gaming the system. I think that's part of why, at least that's my interpretation, of why these work requirements are instituted. What is your take on that? I have to push back on that narrative because the statistics show that most people who are newly eligible for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act are working. As I said earlier, they're the working poor. They're mm -hmm. people who are working low-wage, 
minimum wage, part-time jobs, often multiple part-time jobs. Most people who are eligible to enroll in Medicaid under the Medicaid expansion are people who are in a family with at least one full-time worker. And so that narrative is a sticky one. It's a mm -hmm. hard one to eliminate. And I think in part that's because private health insurance is so expensive that people want to understand why it is that if they're buying insurance in the exchange, they have to pay a lot of money out of pocket when it seems like their neighbor who may be eligible for Medicaid is getting something more. It seems right, unfair. Right, right, So I, I think that it's a, a complicated story because... In truth, private insurance is still very expensive. Yes, and and to uh, and to address that issue, I've heard from many uh, many folks that they feel since Obamacare was instituted, they feel that their premiums are higher, their deductibles are higher, and they believe their coverage is maybe not as good, or they didn't have they couldn't keep the doctor. What what do you say to those people? Are they really interpreting their their coverage correctly? I would say in most of those cases, without knowing the specifics, right. usually what has occurred is that someone had relatively inexpensive health insurance coverage, but it's what we call junk insurance. Mm -hmm. In other words, it would have perhaps excluded pre-existing conditions, it might have excluded maternity care, probably had caps on coverage, and statistically speaking, 98% of us will need medical care within the next five years, but none of us can actually predict who that will be, and we don't necessarily have to use our health insurance much, if at all, in any given year. So that if people had those policies and never had to use them, they might not have experienced how little they were actually worth. Mm -hmm. Now, insurers have to provide 10 essential health benefits so that we have less of this junk coverage around. But it is uh, more expensive to ensure that all of that coverage is provided. And some people who hadn't bought private health insurance are probably just surprised at the fact of its cost because you pay for the premium, right? That's the money you pay to get the right. contract with the insurer. But then also, once you start using the insurance, there's more money that you have to pull from under your pillow or your pocket or wherever mm -hmm. you have it to pay a co-payment to the doctor or to pay a deductible once you enter the hospital. And I think, unfortunately, people are often surprised by those expenses, even though they probably existed in their prior health insurance plans. Right. With regards, in our last few remaining uh, minutes, I want to devote to issues with regards to women's health care. Um, you know, there's uh, all this talk, there's a war against women in this country. Um, what is your take on, on some of these issues that we've discussed, you know, these maternal deserts and the issues of, of coverage in women and gaps in coverage? What, what do you say to those folks that uh, aren't really listening when we say there's a war on women's health? I think that we need to take a hard look at the cohesiveness of how we think about women's health. If we look at women's health as a continuum of care, for example, in a state where, again, for example, Medicaid expansion hasn't occurred, those are states where maternal mortality is higher, where more hospitals are closing maternity wards, and those also tend to be states that are more hostile to, for example, access to abortion care. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that we need to understand is that women are not just reproductive creatures, but reproductive care is an important part of our total health care. We have the ability to reproduce for more than 30 years, most of us, and we need a particular kind of care to occur. And so if, for example, a state is making it impossible for a woman to access abortion care, 
Statistically, a third of all women of reproductive age are going to need access to abortion. And it is looking at the whole picture of women's health um, emblematically important because it sends a signal that that state isn't thinking about the health of a woman as a whole. And so I think we need to stop trading aspects of medical care for political gain mm -hmm. and start thinking more holistically about what it takes to have a healthy population. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that issue about political gain, I, I remember reading that uh, the state of Kentucky was the governor who actually got that coverage through. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, any of the senators. It was actually uh, the governor of Kentucky, was it not? When we're talking about Medicaid expansion, yes, yes. yes, it was Governor Bashir who was responsible for implementing Medicaid expansion in the state of Kentucky. But that is a state, to take your example, that does have very limited uh, women's health access. There is one remaining abortion clinic in Louisville right now. Mm -hmm. And then in Texas just recently, uh, it was called the... Um T top right. trap, laws, trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion provider laws. So these are laws that make it more difficult for re those healthcare providers who provide reproductive care to, in particular, provide abortions. And uh, these kinds of laws are designed to make it difficult to provide care. And so in Texas, there was a set of laws that were enacted one of which made it so that any abortion provider had to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic where they were providing abortion care, another of which required the clinic to meet the standards of ambulatory surgery centers. And in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, the Supreme Court held that if a state is going to enact laws in the name of protecting women's health, as Texas claimed it had done in those laws, that those laws must actually help women's health as opposed to closing down healthcare providers and making it more difficult to obtain safe care. So it seems like there's a quandary here. It's hard for women to get prenatal care, and it's hard for women to get um, family planning care. So, um, Especially with the Title X rules that are being implemented by the Trump administration right now. And, yeah, and, and just briefly before we close, can you just give us a quick synopsis of Title X? Title X is federal funding for family planning. It's funding that's key for health care providers that serve low-income women. And the Trump administration is requiring those health care providers to not speak about abortion at all which is difficult when there may be only one Title X provider in a 100-mile radius because sometimes that is actually the medically necessary care that a woman may need. Right, right, the health and safety of the mother. Well, thank you. This has been eye-opening. It's been enlightening. It was, um, and I hope it will help a lot of people understand what's really going on with uh, the Affordable Care Act expansion and uh, women's rights. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Same here. I want to thank our guest, Nicole Huberfeld, for sharing her research and opinions on the issues regarding health care, the Affordable Care Act, and the U.S. Constitution. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit The Legal Edition online at thelegaledition.com. As always, this information is for general educational purposes only. It is not to be construed or relied upon as legal, business, or professional advice. And please consult a qualified practitioner as to your specific legal, business, or professional needs. And don't forget, subscribe online, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter.